So we have been working through which book? Hosea. Hosea. Okay. And Hosea was a prophet. And we learned a little about his wife who was unfaithful to him. Do you remember his wife's name? Gomer. Gomer. Gomer was his wife. Okay. She was unfaithful to him. And he brought her back. And the whole point of that story or that the story he lived out in his life was what? Uh, a parallel to Israel and God. A relationship between Israel and God. Right? An analogy or a parallel, right? Between Israel and God. So Israel is the one who's unfaithful. Right? Remember, they used his children as messages to Israel. Remember, he named his children like they were messages to Israel. And his whole life, basically, was set up in such a way where he had to struggle through her not being faithful to him. And the idea was this, that as she turned against him... He went and drew her back to him. And she turned again and he went and he, in a loving way, pulled her back. And this is a picture of what God does. God is very patient. But God is not blind to see what's happening in Israel. And it's not without consequence. Okay? Same thing with her. She had consequences when she was gone and when he brought her back and he said basically everybody's going to know this. The world's going to know this. It's like you're standing out there stripped naked in front of everybody. Everybody can see everything that happened in your life. But I'm still going to bring you back. And that's exactly what God does and today we're going to start to see some of the final consequences in history that God has. Now we're going to go to chapter 10 and 11 today. And first I'm going to talk about a fruit. Grapevine. Now, grapevine, what is the purpose of a grapevine? To grow grapes. Okay? And I suppose you could find a few smaller things you might be able to do with a grapevine. How well does it work as a rope? Not really well, right? It's not super. Could you burn it for wood? Yeah. It's going to be as good as a tree? Nowhere near as good as a tree. Even the big grapevines, and I've seen some big grapevines in the woods that have grown for many years. Even that big a grapevine still isn't going to be like that. That big of a piece of oak or something is going to be far, far better to burn. So it really has one purpose. We have also, my kids and I, have cut a grapevine that was hanging in a tree and swung from it too. Fun to do, but not. <laughs> See how far you can get. You do run into trees and things in the way. Could be a problem. And if it lets loose, 
It wasn't my idea. <laughs> so the idea is this. A grapevine that does not grow grapes is pretty useless. The whole point of its existence is to grow grapes. Right? So we planted a couple of grapevines at our house and it was two or three years before we got those actually to start to produce. If they hadn't have produced, I'd have mowed them over flat because what's the point, right? But eventually they started to produce again. Well, today Hosea is going to compare Israel to a grapevine without grapes. Okay. Let's start in chapter 10, verse number 1, 2, and 3, please. Hosea chapter 10, verse 1, 2, and 3. Israel is an empty vine. He bringeth forth fruit unto himself. According to the multitude of his fruit, he hath increased the altars according to the goodness of his land. They have made goodly images. Their heart is divided. Now they shall be found faulty. He shall break down the altars. He shall spoil the For now they shall say, We have no king, because we feared not the Lord. What then should a king do to us? Okay, so here it is. Israel is a grapevine without grapes. Grapevine without grapes. And so not only, we just talked about, they're kind of useless, right? What if you had an entire property full of grapevines that never grew grapes? The whole property is useless. In fact, they're taking up space and nutrients that you could do something else with, right? If they're going to use all of this grape, uh, all of the nutrients from the soil and all the water, you really are just taking up the space and taking up the nutrients and taking up the water, taking up the, something that could be used for something else, more useful, but you're not giving anything back. Right? And this is what he says is, you are like this, Israel, and here is why you are like this. You come to me and you take goodness and nutrients from God. And you take those goodness and nutrients and all you do, instead of turning around and doing something fruitful with them, you take the things that I give you in your life, and you turn around and you make idols out of them. I provided you with a place to live. I provided you with a land that flowed with milk and honey. I provided you with woods and forests, trees. I provided you with soil to grow things, and you take all of these. I provided nutrient-rich soil. I provided places where uh, you have gold and silver and all these things. And I give you all these things, and you turn around, and instead of praising God and doing something good with it, you turn around and you make an idol with it. I gave you all those things. It's a pretty uneducated and or ungrateful human that can be created by God, breathe the air that God provides, use the energy from the food that came from the ground that God made, live in a house made by all of His creation, 
wood and metal and stone, right? Houses are made of those natural things, all coming from God's hand, and turn around and say, I don't want anything to you to do with you, God. I mean, you want anything to do with me. The reason you live in a house is because I created this thing. The reason you breathe the air that you breathe is because I created it. The reason that you can survive and live is because I made animals and, and plants and vegetables and all. I made that for you. And you turn around and say, eh, I don't want anything to do with you. There's a word for that. That is rebellion. And that is the human race, right? We're talking a little bit about it from the creation side. On Tuesday nights, we're going through different things and how the human race has reacted since creation. But rebellion is natural to go inside of a, per a human heart. It's natural on the bad natural side, right? The sinful nature. Rebellion comes in us and we don't even know it. So we sit in all of God's splendor and we shake our fist at God and say, I don't want you. Without God, you wouldn't even be living to shake your fist at God. Right? And this is what God says. You're like that grapevine. You, you, you make a big thing. You take all the nutrients from me that you can and you put nothing back out. No fruit. Fruit is what is... Uh, enjoyed by others. It's how people uh, can survive and get along. It creates food for others. That's what fruit does. And you give none of that. Instead, you take and take and take and you turn around and say, I don't need God. Right? That's exactly what it is in that, that uh, vine without any grapes. Okay, verse number four as we continue on the story. They have spoken words, swearing falsely in, in making a covenant. Thus judgment springeth up a hemlock in the furrow of the <laughs> Alright, so hemlock. There's something famous about hemlock. There are hemlock trees and hemlock plants, but what, what is famous about hemlock? Does anybody know? Hemlock can be made into a poison. And, <laughs> and who was it? Was it uh, Mark Anthony or, or was it Caesar? Somebody was, uh, was poisoned by hemlock. Right? They, they put hemlock like the juice that they made and distilled from a hemlock, put it into his cup and he drank it and died. Okay? Hemlock is poison. So this is what he says. You're basically in a, in a furrow. What's a furrow? Okay. Yeah. So you created this field. And what do you do with the field? You're plowing it for a purpose. Plant something, right? I'm assuming you're going to plant something you want to eat, right? <laughs> this is the point of having it, right? But he says, you have done this. You've like planted a field, but your words have been like hemlock springing up throughout the field. So you did all the work, you do all that things, and you 
planted all of your food out there, but in amongst your food, say you plant whatever, wheat or something, this hemlock is growing and springing up throughout the whole thing between all the furrows. It's coming out and mixing up and entwining. So you can't separate it. And now, if you go to harvest something, you cut some of that hemlock by accident, you might actually have put poison in your food. He says, and that's what it is because you have spoken words swearing falsely and making a covenant. A covenant is simply this, a promise. Right? And so God says, be careful with the words that you speak. Use your words carefully because when you are not careful with your words and you say whatever you feel like and you just blurt out lots of things and you're not careful with your promises, be a person that says, I'm going to do this and then do it. Let those be your words. Or say, I'm not going to do this and then don't do it. But if you're uncareful with your words, he says it's like allowing, it's like a big plowed up field and all of a sudden these little sprigs of hemlock poison grow up all amongst it. Words can be very damaging. So Israel has not only turned their back on God with idols, but they have made promises to God and they broke their promises. Right? Promises, their words didn't mean anything. Their words didn't mean anything and they became like poison amongst their group of people. Verse number five. The inhabitants of Samaria shall fall shall fear because of the calves of Beth Aven, for the people thereof shall mourn over it, and the priests thereof that rejoiced on it for the glory thereof be because it is departed. Okay. There was a king, the very first king of northern Israel. Now you remember what happened. Who was uh, who was the king that it split? Northern and southern Israel split after. Who was the last king of northern and southern Israel? Solomon. Solomon. King Solomon, right? So Solomon was the wisest man ever to live. And yet he didn't seem to pass that to his son. Okay? He had reign over the whole of Israel, this whole section of Israel all through here, right? His son Rehoboam was a dummy, okay? And that's just the truth. He had all of his father's counselors, and he asked them counsel, and then he asked his buddies, who were young kids, counsel, and he says, hey, I know you should probably do what my dad's counselor said because they were pretty wise. I'm not going to. I'm going to do what my, what my buddies told me to do. Tax them. Tax them heavier. You think you were taxed under my father. I'm going to show you what taxing is all about. And because of that, the kingdom split. And he ended up with only the southern kingdom, Rehoboam. Well, the king, there another king, took over ten tribes. So he basically had just one tribe, the tribe of Judah, and the only reason he kept that was because God's promise was to David and that it would stay in his line. And that's probably the only reason that, that Rehoboam kept any of the kingdom. But the northern ten tribes went to a king called Jeroboam, who was not a king before. 
wasn't a good guy either. By the way, these ten tribes in the northern kingdom never had a good king. From Jeroboam all the way down through to the very last king. Every leader they had was either mildly bad or awful. Or somewhere in between. Okay? They had king after king after king after king. How'd that be if that's all you ever had in your nation was bad leaders? Things go, go awry quickly. Well, Jeroboam, that first king, said, we don't want you to have to travel all the way to Jerusalem. Now, what's in Jerusalem? What's important about Jerusalem? About the temple, right? God says, go to the temple. Jeroboam says, that's too far. Don't bother doing that. I'll stick a couple of spots here where you don't have to travel so far. We'll put one in Dan, and we'll put one in Bethel. And those two little towns, I'm going to create a spot where you can go and worship. And what I'm going to put there are these big golden calves. What? <laughs> what, what are you doing, right? Why are you doing that? Well, his objective is to keep power. Right? That's what Jeroboam wants. He wants power. So if he can give them a way to keep them in the kingdom, because Jerusalem might bind them back together with the southern kingdom, but he wants the power and he wants the people, and I'll make it easier for you. And beyond that, he takes those calves and says, well, here's your new center of worship. Don't bother. And so he offers religion for the lazy, okay? Religion for the lazy. And the problem is with religion for the lazy, if you do something just because it's a little more convenient, if that's how you're going to worship God, then you're probably not really worshiping God. And I'm not saying it has to be hard, but if you just do the things because you'd like it better that way, or because it isn't quite so hard to do it that way, then probably that's not what God is really asking you to do. God gives you a pathway and says, do this. Sometimes it's wonderful and full of blessings. Sometimes it's difficult. But if you just do something because it's an easier path, and you say, well, I'll get to God this way, God says, no, this is my pathway. This is the one I created. This is what I want you to do. Right? And when he said, go to the temple in Jerusalem, then you go to the temple in Jerusalem. But instead, Jeroboam says, nah, don't go that far. So he creates these calves. And what happens is when people go to these calves, this center of worship, they don't even worship God after a while. They forget all about God. And when they forget about God, they turns their hearts away more. They pick up more idols. And it spins more and more and more and more and more out of control. King after king after king. It gets worse and worse and worse. Okay? Pretty soon... Most of the people in northern Israel don't know much about God. And they've turned their whole lives away. Okay? Now, God has sent prophets to tell them along the way. He's given messages to them, generation after generation, but they continue to turn their back on God. Now, these, I told you there were two places, right? Right? 
Dan, a little town of Dan, and a town of Beth L. L is the word for God, Beth is the word for house, that's the house of God. Okay, it was a famous place. We're gonna look in here, right, and read that next verse, verse number five, as we see about golden calves. Verse 5, wherever we are, I don't know. Chapter 10, verse 5. The inhabitants of Samaria shall fear because of the house of Bethlehem, the people thereof shall mourn over it, and the priests thereof that rejoiced on it, for the glory thereof because it is departed from it. Okay, so, now I told you there was in Bethel, right? The house of God. Bethaven, Bethaven, okay, is a little different word. And though there is a place of Bethaven, that's not where the calves were. But God is telling you what it really is because he says, it's not a Bethel, it's not my house. Bethaven means the house of vanity or the house of foolishness, right? He says, this is a foolish thing for you to think you can go put up a golden cow a little closer to your house, and then just go and worship me with that. That's never how I told you to do it. It's foolish to think you could do that. He says, you've created a house of foolishness, or a Beth Haven, right? A house of foolishness by doing this. And when you did that, you thought I was just going to come there because you plopped a calf down. And when you got there, I wasn't there. I didn't show up. And it made everybody a little frightened. Because it's like I left. I told you where I was. I told you what to do. I told you where to go. And if you follow me, I'll take you in. But if you decide to go a little easier route, he says, it's just foolish to do it. You're not going to find me if you say, I'm going to go meet God over there. You wait and listen to what God has for you in life. You don't tell him how you're going to do it. You can't say, there's a track, God. You run down it. God does what he wants. We have to learn the pathway, right? So we learn the pathway. And they have made a house of foolishness by not following God. Now, Next, we're going to talk about some animals. Now, I don't have training running uh, cattle as far as oxen goes, but that's oftentimes what they did was harness or yoke oxen together. Okay, I've had the fortunate uh, experience of some horses, and it was the same type of thing. Teaching an animal requires some tough love at times. Okay? And the first thing we had to do, I remember the very first time that I uh, went with Bob Pask, we hooked up a big set of draft horses and they were probably 1,600 pounds a piece or so, good sized ones. They had not been hitched up for many years. It took us a long time to catch them first. And we got them caught and we put on their bits and bridles and we strapped them together with these big heavy leather straps called tugs, okay? And then we hooked the tugs to uh, a sleigh, 
an open bobsleigh. And it was in January or February and the fields were filled with snow. Deep, deep, deep snow. We got them going and they went on the side of the road and they started walking and then they started to go faster and faster and faster and faster until they're all out running. Pulling on the reins, trying to do anything you can do to stop them and they wouldn't stop. They're going faster and faster and faster and faster down East Shelby Road, right down here. Now we're hoping that nothing goes wrong and a car doesn't zoom by and they just slam out into the car or kill us or something. So finally, take the reins and pull them one way and one horse pulls and pulls the other horse off and they just start driving into the deep snow up to their bellies almost, the snow. And they run and they run and they run and they run until the snow is so deep that they just buried themselves up to their bellies and stopped. And I remember thinking like, wow, we could have died right there. The only way to stop them and to start to teach them was to give them that hardship of the snow. It was too easy on the road. They could drag us all around and kill us. But we had to drive them into the snow until they had to work so hard that they finally ran out of strength to do it. And they stopped and I remember they were shaking and quaking and shivering their whole chests because they were so nervous. They'd not done it for so long. Sweating and everything because they had just fought to try to fight against that hardship as we drove them into the snowbank. The only way we could stop them. It is often the way that we learn as humans. Very much the same thing. We need a hardship. Well, eventually, I got them to the point with Bob and I worked and worked and worked and worked and ran them better and better and better. And then they got thinking, I know how to do just what he's going to do. So I brought them with a wagon that summer with a wagon into a big apple orchard and all the trees were in rows and so you could go around this road turn and turn and go every which way and in my mind I had not realized it but I had started making a pattern and then as soon as I got three quarters of the way through the pattern the horses started to take over because they knew the pattern better than I did and they started turning before cutting the turn short which was going to drive me into the apple branches and stuff and so I realized again I had to stop them from that pattern and break the pattern and so I made a different conscious turn every single time. We went back and forth and back and forth all different ways, every which way. And if they thought I was going to turn right from last time, I turned left. Because I could feel them start to go this way. Turn left. Push them to a different place. Because eventually, after hours and hours, and I did this many times in there, after hours and hours of running those horses, eventually they learned to listen and pay attention rather than just do what they wanted to do. Alright? It's exactly the way that humans learn. We need hardships to stop lots of times, just like the snowbank. We need hardships to make us stop and listen to God because we're just going to plow ahead and do whatever we want to do. And eventually God gets us to the point where, nope, 
You listen to me. You think you're going to go right. You're not. You're going left. You think you're going to go left that time. No, you're not. You're going to go right this time. And instead of going three rows down, you're going to go two rows this time and back one row and over two rows and over three rows. And you're going to do something different every time because I want you to learn how to listen and how to obey rather than just think you know what the next step is. There's humility in it. And that's what happens with the people in chapter 10, verse number 10. We're going to read 10 through 15 because God says, I have to chastise you. I have to discipline you, run you into something hard like the snowbank for the horses to get you to listen. But this is going to be a big chastisement. This is a big... Uh, this is a hardship that they've got to go through. Let's read verse 10 through 15 and see what happens. I will discipline them at my direction. Nations will be gathered against them to put them in bondage for their double iniquity. In Ephraim is as, as a heifer that is taught and loveth to try out the corn. But I passed over her bare neck on Lake Ephraim to ride. Judah shall plow, Jacob shall break his plows. So to yourselves in righteousness, grief and mercy, break up your foul ground. For it is time to seek the Lord, till he come and bring righteousness upon you. You have plowed wickedness, you have reaped iniquity, you have eaten the fruit of lies, because thou didst trust in thy way, in the multitude of thy mighty men. Therefore shall a tumult, tumult arise among thy people, and all thy fortresses shall be spoiled as shaman spoiled Beth Arbel in the day of battle. The mother was dashed in pieces until her children. So, so shall Bethel do unto you because of your great wickedness. Wickedness in a morning for the king of Israel be utterly so he says you're like a you're like a young cow a heifer right and a heifer is essentially a young cow okay you got to be taught you like to tread corn and why do you like to tread corn because you grab, reach down and grab a mouthful, right? I'm going to walk around the corn. I'm going to eat it because it's easy. He says, but I'm going to teach you how to plow. You're not going to easily get that easy little things to do. He says, you're going to have a hard time. You're going to have some hardship. Nations are going to turn against you, and they're going to do some tough things to you. They're going to do some really tough things to you. He says it's going to be just like when these different battles, and he names a couple of them, when there was a fortress that was spoiled, the shaman spoiled Beth Arbal in the day of battle, and the mother was dashed into pieces upon her children. That's a terrible thing when a mother was killed and their blood was sprayed on her children. He says it's going to be bad. But the reason it's going to be bad is because you won't listen. 
You haven't listened to any prophet I've sent. You haven't listened to anything that's going to happen. And so you are going to be taken over by a country. There's a country called Assyria. And Assyria was known for a very, very nasty army. They came in, they did some bad things. Assyria came and took over Israel. The northern kingdom came and cap took them captive and brought them back and they lived in captivity. Right? So that's what's going to happen. And that's what the book of Hosea says is you're going to be taken by the Assyrian, the Syrians. And you're going to have to live through some really hard things. And it's going to be difficult. But you will learn to listen. So often, it takes big, hard things in our life for us to stop and listen to God. And Israel is no different. In fact, for generations, they went on and on and on. And I don't want anything to do with God. I don't want anything to do. We've got our own thing here. We're going to do what we want to do. And God says, I brought you out of Egypt. I did those things for you. I protected you. I gave you this land. I gave you your homes. I blessed you with these things. And you turned your back on me again and again. And you won't listen. I've talked to you. I've tried to bring you back generation after generation after generation. And the only way you're going to listen is I'm going to drive you right into that snowbank, into that hardship, until you can't go anymore. And that's often true about us. We just get, we, we won't listen until we get pushed so hard into something so difficult that finally we turn our minds and say, I can't do this anymore. And God says, so are you ready to listen? Now you're ready. And so for 200 years, they're taken. You think they'd have learned their lesson as a nation, right? They already were in slavery in Egypt for 400 years, right? But they didn't learn their lesson. Then they turned away. And that's the human condition again and again and again. And so they turn away and God says, Syria is going to come and take you captive. And they basically wipe the whole northern population out of Israel, take them off to Assyria. Very few people left behind at all. After 200 years, they don't have a great return like southern Judah does. They trickle back in. They come back little bit by little bit. And those people who were left in hiding there grow back. But now they are a different nation. They have learned to listen. Right? They have not turned their back against God anymore. Now they seek God. And God says, I'll do that for you. Chapter 11, verse 1. When Israel was a child, then I loved him and called my son out of Egypt. So, two things. He says, I called you out of Egypt before. You were in bondage before. He says, you were, when you were young as a nation, you were in bondage with Egypt, he said. And then he puts a little line in there, I have called my son out of Egypt. This is a prophecy that comes true the day that Mary and Joseph have to run with baby Jesus because King Herod is killing all the children under two years old. 
because he heard of it from the wise men. Yeah, about two years ago we heard, that, kill them all, kill all those kids. And so Mary and Joseph run and they stay in Egypt until King Herod is dead, which makes this prophecy come true. Yes, he was born in Bethlehem and yes, he came out of Egypt because after Herod died, Jesus and uh, Mary and Joseph come back from Egypt and they come back into live in Nazareth. Okay, so God uses this to tell there is, there is my son still coming. There is still hope in all of this. I'm going to do amazing things, he says, but you are going to have some slavery, some bondage until then. But I am sending my Redeemer. I'm going to send my Redeemer. Verse number four. Then I drew them with the cords of a man with bands of love, and I was to them as they take off the yoke of their jaws, and I laid meat unto them. Okay? So the cords of love. I, I'm going to take and I'm going to finally bring you back to a good place. I'm going to teach you. And I'm going to take that, that uh, what do they call it? The yoke on their jaws. So... They have essentially something called a bit and a bridle on a horse, the same type of thing, where there is something that goes in their mouth, a metal bit that goes in their mouth. And it's attached with a leather harness over their head. And then you take reins, leather straps, and you pull them one way or another, and the horse gets pressure in its mouth from this bit. And if it's a particularly nasty horse, you can put a particularly nasty bit in there that breaks in half, that bends and puts more pressure if they won't listen. He says, but finally, after you go through all of that, I'm going to bring you back home, and I'm going to take that all off of you, and I'm going to feed you, because that's what you'll need. You'll need to be re-fed and rebuilt back up. Okay, I'm going to do these things, he said. And then skip down to verse 9. I will not execute the fierceness of mine anger. I will not re return to destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not man, the Holy One in the midst of thee, and I will not enter into the city. They shall walk after the Lord. He shall roar like a lion, and when he shall roar, then the children shall tremble from the west. So he said, finally, after it's all done, after we go through this hardship, I will bring you back. I will feed you. I will release you from these things. I will build you back up, and you will listen to me. You will listen. The lion will roar, and the children will tremble. Says, oh, we have to listen to him. It didn't go so well when we didn't listen to him. So let's listen to him. He needs to be listened to. He says, I could really execute my, I could destroy you, but I'm not going to. I'm going to save a remnant out. I'm going to keep a remnant, a small, valuable piece, and I'm going to build you as a nation back out of that small, valuable piece. I'm going to bring you back to life. So God does that often in our lives. He makes an offer to give us something when we just won't listen. We won't listen. We won't listen. We won't listen. And he says, all right, I'm going to have to knock you down a notch till you listen. And when you finally learn to listen, you say, okay, God, I've finally listened. What is it you want me to do? Until then, we say, I know what I'm going to do. 
I'm going to do just what I want to do. Okay? That is God lovingly teaching us through our circumstances, and he does the same thing in the day of Hosea when he says the Assyrians are coming. You're going to learn as a nation. It's going to be hard, but I'm going to build you back up after. All right. Thank you very much. Have a good day.